Welcome to another episode of the Go With John Show. We have Tim Wilson with us today. Tim, thank you for coming in. Thank you, John, for having so, me. So we are actually recording today in the Long and Foster Studios in McLean, Virginia. We appreciate uh, the organization giving us this space to uh, record. So, Tim, tell us who you are and how are you related to Long and Foster and, and what do you do? So I'm the CEO of Prosperity Home Mortgage, and, and we are a mortgage bank. We're, we're in the top 20 more independent mortgage banks in the country. We do mm-hmm. about... $15 billion in loans per year, most of that purchase business. And my partners are, I've got real estate partners in 46 states across the country uh, that are part of Home Services of America. Of course, Long & Foster is our largest brand across the country by far. And right. Prosperity started as the mortgage bank for Long & Foster prior to being purchased by Home Services. Okay, so how did you get to become the CEO of uh, Prosperity? What was your path here, in a, in a nutshell? Yeah, it, it uh, you know, I've been a mortgage banker for 35 years. So really, the, the net result of getting to Long & Foster was Dave Stevens. So mm-hmm. Dave Stevens was former commissioner of FHA, but mm-hmm. was CEO of, of Long & Foster for, uh, for a couple of years. And, right. and he and I worked together at a previous bank for 15 years. And uh, when he became CEO of Prosperity, he brought or when he became CEO of Long and Foster, he brought me in to run affiliated business. Gotcha. So, what is your market area? So you're in 46 states. Yes. What what, what kind of challenges do you face operating in 40? Because you have to because each state has their own set of regulations that you got to deal with. Correct. Yeah. It, it's much more difficult than we were when we were just in the Mid Atlantic. And uh, but. You know, much more rewarding. I mean, we've got 30 plus brands that that are real estate partners and uh, went from about 10,000 agents to 50,000 agents. So uh, very rewarding. Yeah. So you do a lot of traveling? I do. I'm probably in a non-COVID environment. I'm on the road at least two weeks a month. Wow. That's got to be tough. Yeah. Well, it's I, I enjoy it. Yeah, well, that's you where have I to. feel most at home. Yeah, you have to. So I guess tell us a little bit. I want to just hear a little bit about what, what tell us a little bit about prosperity. What kind of products do you guys offer? What's your ideal customer? And then we'll kind of get into maybe some of your history and some of your uh, stories that, uh, that that may be somewhat entertaining. Okay, so, you know, prosperity, I, I think, you know, we're great at conforming loans, anything mm-hmm. Fannie, Freddie, FHA, but really strong VA lender. Uh, we waive a lot of fees for our veterans, uh, and I, we're real strong. I would say up to three million is in our wheelhouse, and, okay. and we've done loans higher than that, but really up to three million is in our wheelhouse, and so we don't have a whole lot of gaps. Uh, construction perm would be one of them, but we are working to fill that gap and hope to have that done in sometime in the next year. But uh, you know, we're a, we're a large lender, and, and primarily all purchase. Good, 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 good. So, reading your bio, um, so you've you've done some work with diversity and inclusion, and that's a big hot topic right now. So, what is your, uh, I guess, what is what is your role in with prosperity with with the um, area of diversity and inclusion? What, what are you guys doing? Well, we're doing a lot. I, I mean, I and I think our industry needs to do better in that space, you know, mm-hmm. for, for the Fair Housing Act passed 50 years ago. And uh, I over the past three years, we've really, we, we haven't just, I, I've seen a lot of money thrown at this issue without right. solving the problem. I think what it's going to take is for senior leaders, decision makers to be involved in, in and looking at it as a business issue and, and uh, donating both time, energy, and, and 
you know, the power to make decisions into this problem. And that, that's the only way it's going to be fixed. But we've, we've been very active over the past three years. Right. So what do you what do you see as kind of the biggest uh, hurdle there or what do you see as the biggest problem? Is there something that you can look at and say, wow, this. So you say the Fair Housing Act passed 50 years ago. What is not working? Where do you think the uh, the, the biggest challenge for under is it underprivileged? Uh, I, I, communities? Would, I, How would, I you... would use the term underserved, underserved. Okay. And, uh, you know, that they're underserved is the definition i mean they're just there's not enough activity housing activity in those markets and and uh i think there's got to be more focus there so you know one of the things you know as you know in our model we have loan officers sitting in real estate offices right uh one thing we did started it in end of 2019 is, is we hired uh 23 clos community loan officers okay uh all either african american or culturally hispanic so they're bilingual so that made a huge difference. I mean, I mean that group. I just looked at their numbers today. They've already done over 225 million in applications this year, and that wow. was from zero two years ago. Wow! And so they'll end up doing about 500 million in, in production this year. So, you know, it, it, it was clear to me you've got to have reps that look like the community, right. and and we hadn't done a good enough job in that up to now. But we are really committed to that. We know it works. the The other thing I I would say is. Uh, we've we've opened an education center in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and it's a test. You know, we're testing things in multiple different markets. Right. In Atlanta, we opened a real estate office in College Park, an inner city Atlanta market. And, and you know, my, my theory around minority lending is there's a 40% gap between minorities and Caucasians and, and home buyers. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I don't look at it as something that's the right, just the right thing to do, although it is. Uh, I think it's good business. I, right. I mean, I, I think that there's a trend there. Uh, and there's an opportunity. And so I, I see it as both the right thing to do, but I see it as good business as well. Right, right, right. Good, 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 good. So, so Tim, that's great. So, so now you've actually done some public speaking mm-hmm. on this uh, topic. So when, when you're up in front of a crowd and you're talking about this, this topic, what, what kind of feedback are you getting from the folks? Great feedback. I, I, you know, to me, it's, it's getting engaged at, at the most senior level mm-hmm. uh, of our industry. And, and I, I attended an event in Atlanta <clears throat> a few years ago that, that was run by NAMBA. N- NAMBA is National Association of uh, Mortgage yeah, Minority Mortgage Bankers, mm-hmm. and mortgage bankers and mortgage brokers. And, and, you know, what I noticed at that event, and I only went because I happened to be in Atlanta, and, and I had heard about this organization, and, right. and they're one of the, the largest minority-owned trade organizations in the country. And, and so I wanted to see what it was about. And, and what I noticed was there were no CEOs there. I, I was the only one there. And every large bank and mortgage bank had a diversity uh had a diversity employee there. So mm-hmm. somebody that runs diversity and inclusion and, and runs minority lending. Right. And I met with a number of them. But but what was clear to me is that they they were great people that really knew the issues and the challenges, mm-hmm. but they were not in a position to actually make deals. Right. And, and that they were not the decision maker. And, and so, you know, I would have our head of diversity and inclusion and, and head of minority lending, uh, April Alexander. I, she, she's been with Prosperity since we started the company. Mm-hmm. And she would come back from events and tell me what we needed to do. But it didn't hit home with me until I was there. So uh, I left that conference. I made two deals before I left that conference. One was to recruit 
minority candidates for us, and, mm-hmm. and that's how we got the 23 CLOs. Did you and get them from that conference? I got them from that conference. Wow, that was great. I, I made that was a recruiting nice. deal at that <clears throat> conference, and, and in two years, he has sent us 23, those 23 CLOs wow. that are wildly successful. They're averaging 13 apps per month. Yeah. And, and then the other deal I made was with a company called uh, D&E Consultants, and, and they – they have a counseling service that, mm-hmm. that they get they get uh, candidates from churches and communities and, and they get a mortgage ready. So so we pay for the counseling service. It's it's like six hundred dollars and sometimes it takes two months, sometimes it takes two years. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, it, I was able to make two deals. I mean, literally sign contracts on the spot, and that's what, what is not happening. And, right. and and so the CEOs and the, the decision makers, they either got to empower the people that are attending these conferences, or they got to do it themselves. So right. I, I, I became way more committed at that point when I saw what could move the needle. Right. And when was that? That was in 2019. Right. So you were ahead before of all this mayhem oh, that we've yeah, just been yeah. through for the last yeah, couple yeah. of years. You know, I've That's... followed it for years, and, yeah. and I, I've always been baffled that we can't solve it, you know. I mean, yeah. if we had a business problem, and I look at it as a business problem. I mean, right. it, if we have a business problem at Prosperity, I, I get, you know, we've got the same nine senior leaders at Prosperity when we started the company 10 years ago. I get them in a room. We say, here's the problem. We're going to test it in two or three markets. We're going to solve this. Right. We're, we're going to try different things, and we'll figure this out, and then we'll run it nationwide. Yeah. Well, that's what we need to do with this. I mean, we treat it just like a business problem, and it's very solvable. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, congratulations, and uh, it's uh, it says a lot about you that you uh, that you uh, got ahead of this and uh, dove in and, and, and started working on it a long time ago. Every, everybody's doing it now. Now it's in vogue, yeah. and that's great. I think yeah. that's fantastic. And, no, uh, I, yeah, I'm, I appreciate the fact. You know, we got the agencies are working closely with us. I, I, I mean, there's – Really strong engagement right now. Fantastic. All right. Well, we're chatting with Tim Wilson. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Tim. So we're back with uh, Tim Wilson, uh, CEO of Prosperity Mortgage. And Tim, that was really impressive um, to me uh, and I'm sure to a lot of the folks that are listening uh, that, that you were able to get in there and get ahead of uh, the diversity challenge in business uh, long before it became a daily topic on the evening news. So um, that's, that's a great leader. And, and uh, obviously that has a lot to do with how you became the uh, uh, CEO of Prosperity and, you know, well-deserved, obviously. So tell us a little bit about your history and how you grew up and uh, where did you get kind of your, your drive? So, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting background. I, I grew up, I, I was born and raised on a, on a farm in Kansas, and when I was six years old, uh, my parents moved to a small town called Coffeyville, Kansas, and mm-hmm. and uh, they had 13 kids, so I, I've got 12 siblings and, and same parents, and, and we were obviously Catholic, that, yeah. that, 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 can go, <laughs> that can go without being said. But uh, so anyway, I, you know, I, I was the... 11th of 13. I had wow. seven, uh, seven older brothers. And so, you know, it was interesting in our household, we had seven bedrooms and one bathroom, no, no shower, just one bathroom. So you become pretty efficient when you're living with 12 siblings and, and one bathroom. But, uh, you, you know, what, what is interesting to me is, is I've never looked at a job as a job. As we were young children growing up, we were seeing our brothers and sisters 
starting their jobs and and it all started with paper routes and and they mm-hmm. we would start paper routes when we were 11 years old and and we were able to observe that it gave them independence that mm-hmm. for the first time in our lives we were able to we had our own money and and you know we were I mean, there's 13 kids, so you didn't go to your parents and say, I need money for a movie. You, right. you know, that was your job. So <laughs> so we didn't – our family grew up looking at a job as, as an opportunity, not as something we had to do. Right. And, and so – and I've – we've kind of felt that way throughout our lives. So every job I've had has, you know, felt like a, a privilege. Right. And – I think that that's the way we approached it. And I was able to, to watch success. You know, I, I, I had two paper routes at age 11, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And, and in those days, you went out and you collected. You, you mm-hmm. didn't just – I had 123 people on my paper route. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I went out and, collect. you know, you collect the first 80 to pay for the papers that, yep. that you're getting delivered every day. And, and then you're – the, the last 40 are the money you keep. So I was making about $80 a month as an 11-year-old, and that, and that was huge money to me. Sure. So so it, it kind of got me started on, you know, jobs being a privilege and, and a pleasure. And, and you know, it, it's kind of the way I've looked at jobs all my life, and I've loved every job I've ever had. So, uh, you know, it, it's – I was fortunate to grow up in an environment where, you know, you're, you're looking at a job as, as not just a means to an end, but – but, you know, something you're privileged to be able to have. So I got into banking because after you went from the paper out, then you went to a job until you turned 18. Then you went to work for the local bank. And and so my brothers and sisters, as they, you know, it's just kind of a stair step as they went to junior college in this small town and then they would move on, I would take their job at the bank, the next sibling in line. Like the paper route was in our family for over 15 years, same wow. paper route. So it was just, you know, it, it, my, my business – path was laid out for me from the time I was five years old to, to the time I went away to college. So at 18, they, the, literally the day I turned 18, went to work at a bank. And I worked at banks throughout college, and, and they were great places to work because they gave me the flexibility. I could do sports. Uh, they would let me work off hours. I could work weekends. And, and so it was just a great tool to help me get through college. And and it it I just stayed in banking from that point on. Well, it's, plus you're on the front line with the consumer. You get to absolutely, meet people. Absolutely, without a doubt. I, I think there's nothing better. No, and, I, I was a teller for many years and, yeah. and loved it. I, I mean, I've loved every job I've had in banking. And, and so I just – and again, I've loved every job I've ever had. But yeah. it, it – uh, Banking just kind of got me started. Started on the operational side, and then I went into the the lending side uh, not too long after graduating from college. So that's kind of how. And and then every job just kind of fell in place Mm -hmm. from that point on. So so it's really interesting, you know, talking to Lillian in in my mom, Lillian Jorgensen, Mm -hmm. in the very first episode. So she grew up in a house with no hot water and one bathroom. And what, what was your looking back on that at that time? Did you feel like you were in a bad situation or wh- how did you feel about? Oh, your I life would I, say the opposite. I mean, I, it, it was awesome. You know, yeah. I, I had two brothers and three, three of us slept in the same room for in bunk beds, yeah. triple bunk beds for, <laughs> for I don't know, t- 10 years. You know, the other thing interesting in a household like that is we had what was called the bump system and and. It, you know, you have – in those days, you, you didn't have two – a formal living room and a living room. You had a couch and two chairs and a, yeah. and a small living room. And so, you know, there were 13 kids and two adults. And, yeah. and so we had something called the bump system that was when, – when somebody younger was sitting in a chair – Anybody older could just – they didn't even have to say a word. They just put their thumb up, and that person would have to get up and, oh and go sit God. on the floor. And, <laughs> and, and there was never – 
it was never an argument, never a yeah. word exchanged. And yeah. it was just, you know, I, I thought that was like a federal law. And, and <laughs> you know, a, a, as I then went to my friend's house, you know, I, I would try to bump one of their younger siblings and they would say, dude, what are you doing? And, and, and so I, that, then my mom explained to me, that's a rule here in this house. But, yeah. you know, it, it was, I never sat in a chair until I was 12 years old, you know. Wow. I mean, I, I, it, being number 11 of 13, it, it was, uh, you know, the, but, but the bump system, you know, created discipline. You know, sure. it, it, it taught you that there are going to be rules and, and you don't argue with those rules. That, right. that's, that's the way it is. And, right. and so you learn discipline in a house that size. So how scarred is number 13? <laughs> is that was that was that a, a, a brother or a sister? It's a brother. I got yeah. a little sister and a little brother, yeah. and, and uh, he he got gypped. Well, you know, it, it, it's I mean, today we we get together all the time, so yeah. you know we're we're extremely close. Grew yeah. up close, and and you know, I ten of the thirteen graduated from college, and the other three were very successful business people. So yeah. almost all of them are retired, and they all have retired back in this small town we, we lived right. in, and. So it's, you know, it's, I, I don't know. I don't think anybody felt chipped. It's even more fun today than it was as we were growing up. So it up. still lives in your family. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, some traditions should just never die. Right. So when you went to Coffeeville, did you guys still have a farm or did you move off the farm then? No, you know, we had... We had, I, th I believe we farmed 600 acres in Parsons, Kansas, and my dad was a full-time sales salesman. He, right. he sold insurance, sold hearing aids, uh, worked for Manor Bread. Yeah. But he, he was always a salesman, and, and we did, the kids did the farming, and, you know, we weren't successful farmers, you sure. know, we were just kids. And, yeah. But, but we, had, we had our own cattle, and we had chickens, and so we yeah. ate well, really well. Yeah. Uh, but my dad was always a salesman, and when we moved to Coffeeville, we, we had, he had, sold the farm and and he you know he raised 13 kids as a salesman he was a yeah. great salesman yeah that was a, that was a good move farming's no joke yeah right no <laughs> it is not and and he was you know to raise 13 kids as a salesman he, he was right. a, he was very very good right fantastic well tim thanks for sharing that with us we're going to take another quick break and when we get back let's talk a little bit about covid and uh some of the opportunities that you've seen that have arised from this uh, pandemic all right great all right, we are back with uh, Tim uh, Wilson, CEO of Prosperity Mortgage. So, Tim, let's chat a little bit about uh, what we've been through for the last 18 months with COVID and, and tell us what, what you have seen as maybe some opportunities that have bloomed out of this uh, crisis. So, you know, the big thing I've noticed is, and listen, COVID was horrible and, and the, it, it was terrible that the country had to go through that. But you know, I, I hear people say things like when we get back to normal, and, and the one point I would make in our industry for sure, but in most industries is, you know, that there's, we're not going back to normal. I mean, the employer-employee relationship is going to be different. Mm -hmm. So the COVID environment forced us overnight to go remote. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, had that happened 10 years earlier, it would have been a big problem. I mean, there, there would be loans that, that could not close and, right. and because we were all connected right. internally to a network. Now, fortunately for Prosperity, we had gone 100% laptops and, mm -hmm. and completely remote. And we did it because primarily we were mid-Atlantic Northeast as part of Long and & Foster. And we knew that there were weather events. And, mm -hmm. and we had a policy that when the federal government closes, we close for weather. Well, they closed a lot. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, mm -hmm. if you have a half an inch of snow, the federal government closed. So 
we couldn't depend on, you know, we, our realtor is our customer. Right. And, and so we knew we had uh, to be able to operate remotely. So anytime there was a weather event, we told our processors and underwriters, take your laptops home and our loan officers, and, and, and we never missed a beat. Mm-hmm. So when this happened, it, it was, you know, within 24 hours, we were doing everything remote. And yep. we thought it might be for weeks or right. maybe a few months. <laughs> Turned out to be over a year. Yeah. But but it you know we never missed a beat. Had the biggest year we ever had by far. So what? And we were able to measure the productivity of our employees mm-hmm. on, on an hourly basis. So right. it was clear to me that that you know with the, the the pandemic forced us to look at a different way to do business. And and what came out of that are employees that said. I don't want to go back to commuting two hours. So, you know, I'm out in the field now, and, and I'm not surprised by what I'm seeing. And, right. and it's the majority. If you go back to pre-COVID, 90% of our employees were coming into the office every day. Right. We have 10% remote employees. And if you go back to pre-COVID, 90% every day. You know, we, we had an ops center in uh, Bristol, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. in uh, – Towson, Maryland, Chantilly, Virginia, and you know they, they had 50 to 100 people coming in every day. So, and, and highly productive. But what we found was they were also highly productive from home and, and felt like their work-life balance was better. So, it, it's clear to us that in the new world, the new normal, and we don't know what that is going to look like yet. I, I don't think I many companies do. But I agree with you. one thing I know for sure, it's not going to be the old normal. It's not going to Correct. be, you know, 100% of your employees coming to work every day. So I expect 60, 70, maybe as many as 80% of our employees will come into work three or four times a month. Wow. And, and what I think that, as I think all of that through, and, and I'm a student of real estate. I mean, mm-hmm. I've been doing this for 35 years, and yep. I, I've worked in seven different states, and I've called on a real estate agents all over the country for the past 35 years. So I study this, and, and I, as I look at the landscape, the single biggest issue in real estate today is inventory, and, and, and there's only one shot at solving that problem. That's build your way out of it. Mm-hmm. And, and the builders could not keep up. I mean, right. the, the, there's 86 million millennials that are between the age of 13 and 31 that are in their prime buying are going to be in the prime buying uh, period in the, over the next 10 years. So mm-hmm. there's no way we can solve that with the inventory that's currently on the market. So builders have to build at a much faster pace than they have up until now. What COVID, the opportunity created by COVID is builders are going to be able to continue to build further out. You know, I, I came from California. I lived in California 10 years, and I saw the dot-com boom and bust. Right. And, and the interesting thing in that environment is and and you'd have to be from California to know these markets, but there's a market called Inland Empire in Southern mm-hmm. California. Mm-hmm. That's probably 40 miles out of of LA, and there's there's a market in Northern California called Central Valley, and it's mm-hmm. Modesto and and markets like that. And again, 40 miles away, but hour and a half commutes. Right. And as pri- as the the uh, internet boom was created, pricing got so high, people just kept moving further and further mm-hmm. out, and they kept building more and more homes out. So everything worked okay. People were willing to take the commute, but it was brutal, brutal right. on work-life balance and everything. And, and then there was a dot-com bust, and, and those markets went completely bust. People mm-hmm. lost tens, if not hundreds of thousands on their home. Mm-hmm. Really bad environment. So I think what COVID has brought to us is the opportunity to continue to build more remote, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, keep doing the infills and, and the Bethesdas and the McLeans, mm-hmm. but, the, but there are only so many you can do. That's going to create capacity, I think, within the Bethesda and McLeans as other people look to be able to build further out that can work remote. I mean, there's going to be people that are working for employers in D.C. every day, but only go into D.C. two or three times a month. That's right. that, there's no, And it's not going to be tens of thousands of people. It's going to be millions of people right, right. across the country. So I think there's one shot at solving the inventory problem. That's to build your way out of it. Mm-hmm. And I think as I look over the next 10 years that that's what it's going to take. It's going to take a lot of building over a 10-year period. But COVID is – that the pandemic is going to offer relief in the sense that the commute is no longer going to be there for millions of people, and, and, right. and it will create opportunity to build in, in, say, Loudoun County or some of the more remote areas while freeing up inventory in some of the areas where it has to be freed up. So, I, you know, I, almost by accident, I think it's the perfect scenario. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm wildly enthusiastic about new construction new construction builders and buyers, mm-hmm. uh, as well as the real estate industry over the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. I've never been more enthusiastic. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. So but my question is, and, and I don't know if we have a, a solution for this, but I'm, I'm hearing that a lot of corporations, some of the big corporations are coming out and saying that, you know, in the beginning stages of COVID, their remote workers were extremely productive, but now the productivity is kind of waning off and they want people back in the office. Do you see a challenge in managing the uh, folks that are working remotely and probably not processors and salespeople who are commission-based, right? Because they have to, uh, they they eat what they kill, but but your administrative and support staff that may be working remotely, do you see any challenges? Well, I I think there are two, you know, Mm -hmm. and and I went out and visited, I I did a Midwest tour for all of our, what I would call back office ops personnel, uh, processor and underwriters. I brought them into the office to meet with me, to get feedback directly from them. And, 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 and my, uh, we're going to go to more of what I would call a hybrid model. Mm-hmm. And and my thing, uh, I, I guess I get it down to two challenges, and, and that's culture and yep. training. And so I think you got to solve for those. Every business is going to have to solve for those. Now, I'm going to do that by by not leaving people out of the office for a year and a half. So I, I've told our people, you're going to come in three or four days a month because right. you're going to, you're, we're going to continue to drive culture and that's where you're going to see it. Yep. And, and we're going to drive training. Right. I, I mean, uh, you know, we, we, we did remote training for 18 months and, and I would say with limited success, you know, when right. you got people on video yeah, uh, and you're doing a one week training course, man, yeah. it's hard to keep their attention. Sure. So we are definitely going to be bring training back to the office. And I think we can do that in three or four months three or four days a month instead right. of 20 days a month. So you bring everybody in at the same time. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Team building. Without a yeah. doubt. Fantastic. So that, there's answers to this for sure, yeah. but but it's it can't be the way we you, you can't just say, "Hey, everybody's coming in every day." It's right. that, you know, that decision's been made. Yes, it has. Yeah, yeah I agree with you. That's great. So I think yeah, you know, there's an answer to this. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, and listen, it may be 5 days. It may be two days. We don't right. know, but it's somewhere between probably two to five days for most of our yeah. employees. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I think some people are talking about two to three days a week. You're talking about three to five days a month, two to five. Right. That's fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Great. So we're going to take one last quick break, and then we're going to come back. And, Tim, you're going to share uh, some secrets of uh, your success with us. So right. we'll be right back with Tim Wilson. Okay. Thanks,
All right, we are back with Tim Wilson, CEO of Prosperity Mortgage. Tim, thanks again for coming in. I've really enjoyed uh, learning some more about you today and hearing your stories. And uh, I'm still uh, trying to understand in my mind what it must be like to to get bumped. Uh, I, I don't think yeah. I, it would do well with me, but <laughs> if you ever give me this, I'll, yeah, I'll, right. I'll know what to do. <laughs> I am older than you. Yes, you are. Yeah, I was just holding my thumb yeah. up. So uh, I'll always have a seat for you wherever you are, Tim. Just All right. <laughs> All right. So, Tim, tell, would you share with us uh, some of the things? Obviously, you're an extremely successful uh, individual and you're always thinking. I can tell you're always thinking and you're reaching out and you're trying to find uh, new ways to improve the, the business and, and the culture of the company. What, what are some of the secrets or some of the values that you have in business uh, that have gotten you where you are today? Yeah, You know, to me, it's... It's more around touch and feel, and and when, when I were when I was a manager in smaller organizations, mm-hmm. uh, I I used to call it MBWA management by wandering around, and, right. and you know it was always touch, and and you know as I got into bigger positions, it, it was both I never got away from touch. I just right. think it's too important, but I, I started getting data that data was vitally important it's vitally important for me today every morning at six in the morning i look at three or four reports all the way down to the rep level and processor level to know exactly what our backlogs are what what, what every rep has taken an application so right. I, I i i got a good sense for the company and yep. i can i can spot trends troubling trends or good trends right and, and so it it before i leave the house I've got a pretty good idea where the company stands and what I need to focus on. Wow. But but I, I would say my management style in general, and I've been through lots of management training with some really good companies. Uh, I was at a bank for many years where, where the leaders of the bank came from Xerox, and Xerox mm-hmm. at the time was one of the, the top training companies in the country. So I, mm-hmm. I'm a big advocate of training and mm-hmm. management training and, and overcoming objections and sales training. And mm-hmm. so I, we invest a lot in that in prosperity. Uh, you know, never read a lot of business books. I, I, I got people sending me business books all the time. And, and right. you know, I'd read the titles and they look great. But I And I'm a voracious reader, but mm-hmm. I read nonfiction and history, things that, that keep my attention. So I, I would say, you know, that, that, that of all the training I've ever gotten, the, the one that has been most impactful to me is situational leadership. And, and I live by that. And, and you know, I've got... You know, we measure things by how many loans we get out of an office. So our our typical baseline in in every real estate office is to get one out of four transactions. Mm -hmm. So we call that capture rate, 25% capture rate. So if you're getting 25 out of 100 loans, you're a successful office. So I kind of coined a saying that says if you're at 25% or above, I work for you. Less than that, you work for me. Right. So I'm a big believer that that when you got employees or managers that that are getting the job done, you work for them. And and your job is to say, what things can I take out of your way because you're doing everything right. Mm -hmm. If they're underperforming those objectives, then I'm far more directive. Mm -hmm. And I I own their time. And Mm -hmm. so I'm more directive as to what I want them to do. And you know, it seems to work out great because it turns out nobody wants to work for me. So, you know, that, that strategy seems to work very well. But right. I, I think, you know, I, I watch companies manage everybody the same way. Mm-hmm. And every contest is the same. Every task is the same. And mm-hmm. 
I, I, I think you got to get out of the way of the people that are killing it, you know, right. and, and learn from them. Right. So now what do you say to the folks that may be an aspiring CEO? So what, what kind of things, uh, uh, lessons have you learned along the way that, that kind of got you to the next level? So if you go back to being a bank teller, right? So we know how you became, you went from milk and goats to the paper route. I'm assuming you didn't yeah. tell me that. But, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, to the paper route, to the bank teller, uh, what got you to the next level? Did you always just have a drive to get to the next level? Or did you say, hey, I, I want to be the CEO of a company one day? How did you get from there to here? Well, I, I think it's just things kind of fell into place. You know, I, I, it gets back to I loved every job I've ever had. So mm -hmm. I, I, I've always considered a job a privilege, not something I had to do. Right. And I, I think that allowed things to fall into place to some degree. And, and you know, the, the main thing as I became got into higher management positions, it was really surrounding myself with talent, you know, mm -hmm. getting, getting people that were great. You know, if you look at, we started Prosperity as a single entity 10 years ago, and, and I, I think I've hired the absolute best in the business. Right. They're, they're, I got millennials in there. I've got a combination of young uh, thoroughbreds, and, and then I've got some a couple of grizzled veterans like myself, and, and it just, it works very well. Every one of them 10 years later are still with the company. So, wow, that's good. You know, the, you know I... I hire the most talented people I can around me. I, I pay them well and I empower, you know, the most important thing is empower them. Right. And get out of their way, you know. And, and so I, I, you got to have talent around you. You know, you, it's not anything you can do by yourself. And I'm not talented enough to do it by myself. So you yeah. got you to gotta build talent around you. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Good advice. All right. So now let me ask you, have you had some major challenges that you've had to overcome? Have you, have you hit a brick wall or have you had, so obviously uh, I, I think COVID was a challenge, but have there been other things that have happened in your career that, that at the time you felt were devastating? Maybe not in your career for you personally, but maybe from a, you were working with a company and there was a catastrophic event. I know we had a, a, a data breach here at, yep. at, at, you know, that was catastrophic to, to some of our folks here. Uh, did you have any events like that, that, that you can share with us? Well, I would say the most recent event was March of 20, you know, when, yeah. when COVID hit, it, it turned our industry, the mortgage banking industry completely on its head, you know, right. servicing values were wiped out almost overnight. Yeah. Which, which cost your P and L, you know, tens of millions of dollars. Yeah, I, I had people at Berkshire Hathaway saying maybe we should stop taking applications. I mean, what I would consider a significant overreaction to right. non-industry experts, and and you know, I stepped back and looked at it and said this could be the biggest opportunity we've ever seen in mortgage right. banking, and and it turned out to be that. Right, uh, bigger than even I expected, and 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 that's what I told the the board at, at Berkshire is. You know, in an environment like this, the feds are going to drive down rates. They have no other option but right. to do that. Right. And mortgage banking is the best head you could possibly have to yeah. to get through this. And and they agreed, and and therefore we overcame those concerns in a very short time period. And and they they, you know, we had a hiring freeze. They took the handcuffs off. They let me hire what I needed to. So right. you know, they they were they made the right moves. And, and so I I think you know when I look at something that looks catastrophic. Mm -hmm. I, I just know from experience of doing this for 35 years that 
it's going to look very different in a month. Right. You know, and you just got to, you got to work every day to get through that month. And that's right. what we did in, in a COVID environment. And I've seen that in multiple recessionary environments. Right. Same thing. You know, you, you got to try to look, try to get ahead of it, but, but don't panic. Right. I, I totally agree with the not panicking yeah. uh, part of it. So, so how, where were you into, you were with uh, Prosperity in 2007, eight, when we had the uh, mortgage, uh, I, I came to Prosperity, and actually, I think it was 08 or 09. Okay. So in right 07, I was with Wachovia, and yeah. Davis Stevens at that, in 08, I believe, was promoted from president affiliated business to CEO of Long & Foster, and that's when he brought me in. Right, because that was the last time before COVID that we thought the world was ending. Oh, yeah, <laughs> right. Well, and that's another one you could see coming. You yeah. Know? I mean, it, it was and, – and, you know, that's the thing about – I think the opportunities that exist due to remote workers that mm-hmm. that will that that will lessen that risk that you know that it won't eliminate recessions right but I think it will lessen the impact on remote growing markets from a a recessionary real estate environment. Right. So your view is we are not necessarily in a bubble right now. You think we're in a pretty hard trend with housing and uh, the real estate industry that's just going to continue for the next decade. Well, I think the I, I think we are in a temporary bubble created by lack of inventory. Okay. And again, my you know to me the builders are the answer. They they got we got to build our way out of this. Right. And they have not been building enough units. Yep. But I I, I mean if, if I'm advising any builders right now. It's build like hell won't have it, and, right. and be, because the, you know, the math doesn't change. Right. You know, the math is as obvious as it, it's more obvious than it's ever been. The millennials are way bigger than the baby boomers. Right. Well, well, not only that, I read, I, and I, I don't, I don't have the data right in front of me, but I think the building industry—they were building a million homes yeah. a year. But I think for the last decade, we've only been building about five hundred thousand. Yeah, they're new way homes. behind. They're way and, behind. And you know, yeah. now there's a supply shortage. Yeah. Uh, that's going to get worked out. I yeah. mean, as people come back to work and manufacture lumber, you're already starting to see prices come down some. Yeah. But but the builders, you know, you, the, there's only one shot, and that's to build our way out of it. And again. Remote workers are going to create opportunity where lots will become available in more remote yep. locations. And when yep. I say remote, I'm not talking 500 miles from here. I'm talking 20 miles from here. Right. So right. it's just, you know, there's only so many infills, right? That's right. And, yeah. and so I, I just, you know, I I do worry if the builders don't get ahead of this, that, mm-hmm. that a bubble's getting created by lack of inventory. Yeah, It's not getting created because of a complete imbalance it's simply lack of inventory mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the buyers are out there yep well and i think if this and I, and I think you're correct and if this remote working condition is going to stay in place now people are having you know two people at home that need an office or, yep. or places to work you have kids that are going to be going to school but they're going to be coming home and mom and dad or or, or folks in the house may still be working and they need space so they Without people need bigger bigger houses so. oh even the higher end is doing well yeah. you know i uh and that's a market you know 10 years ago i would have thought you know people are going to go smaller well that it's turned out that, well, that COVID it, it has changed that. Flipped, but you're, right. you're absolutely right. Ten years ago, yeah. it was the jewel box house. It was the smaller yeah. house that was more well-appointed. Now, we need square footage. Yeah, if you're, <laughs> you're going to work from home every day, you, you want to work where you want to. You yeah. know? Yeah. So, I, I, I mean, it's I, I like I said, I'm wildly enthusiastic. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing this 35 years. I've never seen a more opportune environment. But, you know, if the builders 
that they we got to build our way out of this. Yeah. I, I mean, they've got to create more inventory than they've been creating at twice the rate yeah. they've been creating it. And and again, the opportunity is there's plenty of land. Right. You know, if you go to Loudoun County and other areas around, and going, you know, somebody will commute an hour and a half three days a month, but they're not going to commute an hour and a half twenty mm-hmm. days a month. So. Yeah. That's where the opportunity is. I think it's huge. Yep, ten four on that. I agree. So, Tim, in closing, thanks again for coming in. This is no I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, is there is there any thing that you want to add to this conversation that we've had today? Uh, no, I think we've covered pretty much everything. Uh, you know, again, if I, I think it's a great time to be a, a homeowner, and mm-hmm. yeah, you know, one thing people ask me about rates a lot. You yeah, know, and and so that's always I, I get that question all the time, and and I guess the one last thing I, I like to tell people is that, you know housing is driven by life events mm-hmm. more than interest rates everybody mm-hmm. is always almost incessantly focused on interest rates and and i and i like to tell the story and i bought my first house in 1982 i, I had a 12 percent two-year adjustable two-year balloon mm-hmm. uh, with no locked-in terms after two years it's just whatever the market was so crazy financial product that wouldn't right. even, you couldn't even imagine today but at the time <laughs> it you know i bought a thirty-five thousand. 1400 square foot house in Paola, Kansas with on 20 acres. Mm-hmm. And I told my then wife and uh, you know that I, I mean I had it all planned out. I was going to have two kids buy a little place in the country with 20 acres and and uh then I was done. And I told my wife at the time, uh you know, I love this place we're never moving and and you know, two wives, five kids, seven states later, <laughs> I, I'm on my ninth house. So the point is you know, interest rates didn't drive those purchase decisions. Right. Life events did. You right. Know, I went from two kids to five kids. I, I, I got married and divorced. And, and those two wives, by the way, weren't at the same time. I want to make sure that's yeah. clear to, to your <laughs> listeners. But, yeah, you know, life events are what create purchase transactions. And, right. and so interest rates... You know they're going to come and go, and and I I, I tell agents and and anybody, you know even homeowners, you know you you don't focus on what you can't control. I mean the mm-hmm. the, the head of the Fed Reserve is not going to take my call, and so rates are going to do what they're going to do. But right. uh, you know I've been through thirty five years. I've seen every interest rate environment you could possibly see, and and I've been busy the whole time. Yeah, fantastic. Tim Wilson, CEO, Prosperity Mortgage. Thank you again for coming in today. Really enjoyed the chat. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Go With John Show. Now go out there and build something extraordinary.